When I was in high school, I seriously wanted to be an astronomer. I mean, look at the stars at night. So many mysteries to solve. I thought I would live my life on a mountaintop staring at the night skies through some massive university-sponsored telescope. The infinite universe was calling, so much yet to learn and discover. Then I sat down and talked with an astronomer, and I found out much of his time was spent writing proposals, getting shot down, then writing new proposals. Then, once the proposal was approved by the department, negotiating time on that massive university telescope. All of which means you get maybe a few hours of actual sky time each year. Okay, that's not what I thought an astronomer does. So my first year at university, I switched my major. Often when I talk to people about pen testing, it's the same problem. They focus on the physical aspect. Some might say the glamorous side of the job. By that, I mean jumping over barbed wire fences, crawling through ventilation ducts, and putting on a ton of makeup to look like that woman from headquarters that most people only see from their emails. You know, the John McClane and Die Hard aspects of pen testing. And yeah, there's some of that. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that for a living? In this episode, though, I'm going to focus on the much more common digital pen tester side. You know, the people who are hired to break into the digital organization, the networks, the software. And this they can do pretty much from anywhere, without much travel. Much less exciting, perhaps, but only because Hollywood chooses to focus on the physical and not really get into the digital side. But that's okay. There's plenty of work on the digital realm, important work. But what does the day-to-day look like for the average pen tester? I mean, really? In a few moments, I'm going to talk to a pen tester who's written a book that can help take your current skills as a system admin and security engineer and turn them into skills you need to become a great pen tester. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations around the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Vermosi, and in this episode, I'm going to focus on the people who are paid to break into organizations' networks, and what background and skills you'll need to be successful, and what steps you can take to get from here to there. You've undoubtedly seen Kim Crowley's work. Her byline appears on a number of blogs from a number of different outlets. She's an impressive force within the InfoSec world. She is also the co-author of The Pentesting Blueprint from John Wiley and Company, available wherever books are sold. Together with Philip Wiley, Crawley draws on her own experience as a pen tester to map out what kind of skills and mindset one should have if one wants to become a successful pen tester. So what exactly is pen testing? Pen testing is when you simulate cyber attacks. So you're not actually conducting cyber attacks because you have the consent of the owner of the network or the computer application that you're penetration testing. But within the rules that your client has given you, you are acting as if you're a cyber attacker. So you're simulating cyber attacks. You're, you're pretending to be the bad guy hackers but you're one of the good guy hackers because your job is to find security vulnerabilities by doing what they might do. So in order to secure a network, you have to think like a criminal hacker and then tack it like a criminal hacker. You want to see if they can penetrate your security and cause it to break in some meaningful way. 
Yeah, you can't discover all of the vulnerabilities that your network or your computer or your application has until you engage in the actions that a cyber attacker might take. So if I'm hearing this correctly, then as a pen tester, you get paid to pretend to be a bad guy and break into the network systems and applications. You hack all day and all night. What a cool job is that? People hear about it and they think, oh, cool, this is like a movie. We get to do all the bad guy stuff. But they don't realize that a lot of the work is your client will give you a specific scope. And if you do anything outside of that scope or outside of your legal contract, then that was a cyber attack and there's legal recourse there. Yeah, pen testing is actually a serious job with serious legal consequences if it's done badly. There's sometimes a very thin line between pen testing and criminal hacking. So as much as you are paid to think creatively like a hacker, there are guardrails and there are hard limits in scope. Again, you are only simulating cyber attacks. You're not actually conducting cyber attacks. So there are rules and you must abide by them. And also there's a lot of paperwork involved. Phil and I maybe didn't mention it too much in the book, but a large part of the pen testing role is writing reports, writing lengthy, detailed reports. I think I mentioned a little bit in chapter seven, like being able to communicate with customers or clients. This happens in other industries as well. Often we romanticize the fun parts, but neglect to learn or even hear about the boring day-to-day aspects of those same jobs. Like airline stewards, they get to travel exciting parts of the world, right? But meanwhile, they're dealing with cranky passengers, the crying baby in back. And then when they get to that exciting city, maybe in a foreign country, they're busy catching up on their sleep. And then they're on the next flight out. So not so glamorous. It's like the misconceptions that lay people have about being a lawyer. We look at shows featuring lawyers like Law and Order or Ali McBeal or whatever. And it's like, oh, so if I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm spending all my time in the courtroom and yelling objection, your honor, and stuff like that. When you speak to lawyers in real life, they will tell you 90% of the job, I'm in my office and I'm handling paperwork. And I may be in the courtroom 5% of the time of that. Why would you hire a pen tester? Think of it as an audit, a double check of all the security systems in place today. Will they perform as expected under an attack? Once you've decided a pen test is right for your organization, you'll then need to decide whether you're hiring a pen tester in-house or third party. In other words, do you want the pen tester to have some knowledge of your network? In which case, you hire an internal team to test the very specific aspects of your organization. Or do you want your pen tester to have no idea? In which case, you might want to hire a third party to test your organization the way a criminal hacker would. There are security testing firms that all they do or what they focus on is third-party penetration testing. Uh, It's very useful for organizations to hire them sometimes. Uh, We've explained in the book the difference between black box testing, white box testing, and in the middle, like gray box testing. In security, we refer to testing done on the inside, maybe even having access to the source code, as white box testing. The application and network information is available to the tester. You can also bring in someone from the outside and give them some idea, but not a lot of information. 
That's called gray box testing. And then there's black box testing, where the third party has no knowledge of the applications or the network. You want to hire an outside security testing firm for black box testing, because anyone inside of your organization will understand your network better than an outsider would. For white box testing, could hire a third party firm and you just explain to them like the network schematics and which applications you have and some of the configuration stuff. So you bring them up to the level of they're doing white box testing. Or larger companies can have their own internal red team. Okay, so a few more terms here. Red teams, blue teams, and yeah, even purple teams. These are in-house pen testers who are hired by an organization and work from within, but each with different goals. In episode five, I talked to a blue team member. These are teams that are given a mandate to fight the bad guys. The red team then are the bad guys, and often they're sitting right next to them, side by side, thinking of new ways to attack the network that the blue teams will try to defend. And purple teams? Well, they're the economic medium between the two. They do a little bit of red and a little bit of blue exercises. Get it? But all those pen testers are inside the company, meaning they're all conducting white box testing, which means they know something about the network. They know something about the company. Given that, why would you necessarily want a red team inside your organization? A red team can engage in a lot of penetration testing and they also try to mimic, they they try to like devise campaigns that mimic trends that we see in the evolving cyber threat landscape. So for instance, in 2017, during the whole WannaCry and NotPetya phenomenon, a lot of red teams were simulating that within their own networks because it it was a new growing threat. It was the hot new thing to worry about. So you want to have a campaign where you're trying to do that to see if your network is, can, be, can succumb to that particular threat. WannaCry and NotPetya are ransomware campaigns from 2017. Unlike other malware, ransomware not only infects the machines, it encrypts all the data, then asks for a ransom to decrypt them. Sometimes the decryptions work, and sometimes it didn't creating headaches for system admins worldwide who didn't have good enough backups in place. So yeah, pen testing is like way more complicated than it might look like to a layperson. If as a third party, like external pen tester, you might be doing both white box and black box. People who work for a company's red team internally can realistically only be doing white box testing. Often, though, when organizations bring someone or a team in from the outside for a limited amount of time to attain a certain goal, which could be something broad like gain system admin privileges to the network, they do so in a way that's very narrowly scoped. They don't want you poking around willy-nilly. So areas of the network are definitely off limits, and certain tests are not allowed. Indeed, much of the process in pen testing is negotiating terms that an organization is willing to expose to an outside audit. You will have a document, probably a lengthy document with your client that defines the specific scope of your penetration test. For example, the the defined scope could be you're only going to perform network vulnerability tests on a certain network segment. And you're not supposed to do network vulnerability tests outside of that network segment. By now, you're probably thinking, oh, 
Maybe all this paperwork, it's only for digital pen testers. Well, not so fast. It applies to the physical pen tester as well. If you're a physical pen tester, the contract might say you're allowed to try and mess with the server room doors and you're allowed to try and sneak into the ductwork, but you're not allowed to steal physical keys, for instance. So you on day one, you will be certain of what you're doing because no company sensibly hires a third-party pen test without a lengthy agreement as to what you should be doing, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do, what parts are you supposed to test and how. So this begins to change how I view a pen tester's first day on an assignment. Maybe day one isn't actually you're on the site and you're going through the list of things to do. Day one is spending time sitting down with the client, discussing what you can do, what you can't do, and making sure that you you agree to what you're doing. There has to be a signed legal agreement with the rightful owners of the networks, of the buildings, of the applications. And it's that signature on that contract and your obedience to the scope of that contract that makes the difference between you being a legitimate penetration tester and you being a malicious cyber attacker. This issue of what's in contract and what's not in contract, and more importantly, who knows and understands this on the inside, might seem boring or perhaps someone else's concern. Actually, it's very important to the pen tester. And this became an issue in Iowa near Des Moines, where two experienced pen testers from a company called Coalfire were operating according to their documented pen test agreement. And they still got arrested. Everything seemed to be going fine until they tripped the alarm at the Dallas County Courthouse, which they were hired to break into. When the alarms went off, they were under the belief that their get-out-of-jail card would come into play. A get-out-of-jail card is usually a letter with contact information. Call the number, and the person at the other end would then vouch and say, yeah, these guys had permission to break in. And that should have worked. Except, in this Iowa County, there was some politics at play. And the people who signed off on the penetration tests of the courthouse didn't necessarily have all the jurisdiction that they might have needed to do that. So while all this settled, the pen testers ended up spending some time in jail for breaking and entering. This type of case is rare, but it does point to the need to get all the documentation and approvals secured up front. So there's that. Then on the back end, you have this massive report to turn in detailing everything you did and found. So, realistically, how much of a pen tester's time is spent preparing the paperwork versus actual hands-on hacking? Is it a lot? Probably, like, as much as, like, a lawyer does more paperwork than actually being in the courtroom. A lot of it is coming up with the legal agreement with your client and trying to also figure out what their security needs are. But a lot of it is sitting down at your desk. You have all this data. You have the logs coming out from network vulnerability scanners. You might have 
recordings made of social engineering attempts and that sort of thing. And you have to look through all of that data that you've gathered over the course of the pen test. And now you've got to write reports. It really varies because there are so many factors involved that make each pen test experience unique. But you could be spending more than half of your time writing the report. For some of you, I've now totally killed the vibe on pen testing. The cool factor just got lost in all the paperwork and legalese. The hard truth is, it's not for everyone. And being able to deal with the negotiations and the paperwork, well, that's indicative of an important character trait needed to be a successful pen tester. That is, attention to details. I mean, if you can't handle the details, then what do you think you're doing in InfoSec? Security vulnerabilities are details. If you're the kind of person who looks at the problem and you see the forest but not the trees, that's not good because your report should be describing each of those trees in detail. You can't get the defensive security people and the client to take action on your vulnerability findings if you're not really detailed about them. So actually being a good writer, um, being able to communicate your ideas well in writing is a really overlooked skill in pen testing, but you'll find it's absolutely necessary. So it's not just making a detailed report, but also being detailed in how you test things. Cool. So someone like me, a communications major, could ultimately find work as a pen tester, perhaps. So we've spoken about what you need to become a pen tester, but what about the other side? What if I'm at a company and that company wants to hire a pen tester? How do they go about finding the right one? What, as an employer, should I be looking for? I think sometimes particular technical skills are overrated. You want a particular mindset, like Phil and I write in the book, The Hacker Mindset. Um, knowledge about a particular application, for instance, can be taught, but mindset can't be taught. So I, if I was hiring a pen tester, I would look for someone who asks a lot of questions. In the pen testing role, asking questions frequently is not a sin. You should have a curious mind, and it's better to to ask a question than to just make assumptions. Also, someone who asks a lot of questions is a curious person who has a hacker mindset. So you want to look for someone who, A, seems really curious and asks a lot of questions, and maybe be someone who is dedicated to self-study because you're constantly going to be learning stuff. Sometimes college and university and certification programs can be very useful, but no one in this industry would honestly say, everything I needed to learn, I learned in school. Yeah, it's true. You can get pretty far in InfoSec without a formal degree in InfoSec. And that's actually good. Bringing in people educated from all different backgrounds, psychology, art, material science, medicine, It only helps improve our understanding of InfoSec. In fact, InfoSec is probably one of the rare fields where you really need to just pick it up from experience along the way. The vast majority of us, if we're being honest, you're going to say, maybe I learned a few important foundational things in school, but the vast majority of what I've learned, I learned on the job. 
And I learned from reading books and blogs and by playing around and doing my own hacking and that sort of thing. So you want to find people who are self-starters and who are good at educating themselves. So I would say don't judge a person based on their knowledge or experience so much. Judge them on their attitude and their ability to self-educate. There's also a lot to be said for transferable skills. Say you're interested, but you don't have the purely technical chops. Say you worked in a factory. You have detailed knowledge of how that factory works and what goes on day to day. Apart from the digital networking side of pen testing, remember, there's also the physical testing side. Your knowledge of how factories work, how corporate campuses are laid out, all of that can help you get inside a building. With physical pen testing, there's also a bit of social engineering and a bit of drama and theatrics as well. But underlying it all is this mindset, can I defeat the security that's in place in some meaningful way? If you're going to focus largely on physical pen testing, you might want to take some block picking courses and stuff like that. I mentioned in the uh, transferable skills, like skills inventory chapter, if someone has a background working as an HVAC technician, your familiarity with the vents will help you as a physical pen tester. You'll know how to climb through those vents like Bruce Willis's character in Die Hard. So that's actually a common way that physical pen tests are done. So occasionally that movie stuff is somewhat realistic. For a pen tester, remember that technical skills also need to transcend the tools that are being used. This is important. The ability to think beyond the tools you are using. It seems to me like that is a critical part of the hacker mindset for being a pen tester. I think one of the biggest misconceptions about pen testing is they see network vulnerability scanning applications like Metasploit Framework or OpenVAS so on and so forth, Nessus, and they think, okay, that's a pen testing application. So you run the network vulnerability scan and there you go. And then you get the results and that's the pen test. Someone who has a lot of experience in the field will tell you that some pen tests, you might not be running a network vulnerability scanner at all. Other times when you do need to use it, it's one component of various other things that you're doing. If running Nessus or running Metasploit is 90% of your work, you're not doing a properly thorough pen test, but it is a useful tool. Good point. You can't just run tools all day and call that a pen test. If it's just a matter of running a few automated tests, we'd all have great security and the data breaches would become a thing of the past. I would think that in addition to attention to details, you also then need a bit of creativity. Yes, definitely. Um, a lot of the people I interviewed in the book, I was so impressed because they had actually developed scripts and applications to test for particular vulnerabilities. Uh, some of the people I talked to in the book, their scripts and sometimes their entire applications were actually implemented into Kali. There are at least two complete operating systems available for pen testers. The more famous of these is Kali Linux from Offensive Security. The other is Parrot OS, which you can download from Parrot Linux. Both come preloaded with many security tools, and it's free. 
So download the latest image, install, then open it up, and there you'll find Wireshark, Burp Suite, and so much more. I've used Calais in training classes at Black Hat. It literally is a Swiss army knife of InfoSec tools. I do mention Kali in the book, especially in the in the lab segments. There are other uh, pen testing operating systems like Parrot, but Kali has the majority market share as far as pen testing operating systems are concerned. Having an arsenal of tools is good, and some would say the more tools are better. So how common is it for a pen tester to write their own tools? I mean, I don't have any exact figures. This is all anecdote, but maybe like 10% of like application and operating system and network pen testers who are confident as software developers. Yeah, they do develop their own tools when they find that there are certain types of vulnerabilities that they need to scan for and the scripts and the applications just aren't there to do it. Sometimes the Scripts that pen testers develop actually become plugins in network vulnerability scanners like Nessus and Metasploit. So you might not just be creating your own standalone application, you might be contributing to an already existing application. There's there's network vulnerability scanning mm-hmm. applications built into Kali. I know Metasploit framework is included in Kali. But sometimes you might be scanning for very specific types of vulnerabilities. For instance, you might be testing for susceptibility to denial of service attacks. You might need to stress test things. You might need to run specific scripts outside of a network vulnerability scanner just to test for certain vulnerabilities. That is probably like one of the number one tools in any pen testers lab. Some people do prefer Parrot. So maybe try Parrot as well. Download Parrot, give it a try. The pen testers blueprint discusses what tools you need to build your own lab. So before we go too far, it's good to remind everyone that you can't just try these security tools on, say, a corporate network or even a friend or family member's computer. There are laws about computer abuse of systems that are not under your control that you don't have permission to use. One of the most important things I think in a pen testers education these days is to install Kali. Just just take take some time, take a week. Um, you don't have to install Kali onto your hard drive. You can run it off of a, a USB stick or or a DVD. In order to try out all the applications, you can't obviously do it on random computers because that's a malicious cyber attack. So get used to installing virtual machines. Become familiar with using uh, virtualization clients like Oracle VirtualBox or VMware and run ISOs for like a wide variety of different operating systems. And just set that up and use that the target for some of the tests. A virtual machine is literally that. A computer that runs virtually inside your own computer. It has its own operating system, its own resources, and its own drive. The beauty of it is that everything that happens inside the VM is contained. And once you've done the testing, you can shut it down and then open a fresh operating system the next time. Run Kali and spend a week or two or more 
going through all the various applications in it and going, there's also a lot of excellent documentation on their website. Everything is like really thoroughly documented. I'm really impressed by their documentation. Okay, so you've got an inquisitive mind. You've got some tools like Callie or Parrot. You even built your own lab. What further advice does Kim have to someone looking to start their career in pen testing? Okay, read the book. It, the book is obviously designed for people who have no experience and are curious about the field. There are certain things that we recommend, like Phil and I, we both recommend, such as try looking for bug bounties. Bug bounties. In episode nine, I talked with Stoke, who runs a popular YouTube channel where he talks about the world and culture of bug bounty hunting. Basically, it's hacking for money. You find a vulnerability, and if the company validates it, you get a bounty. And while there are some people who are earning up to a million dollars a year doing this, there are other advantages just by participating in the challenge. One of the best ways to build a resume without before you get an opportunity to get hired is to participate in bug bounty programs. Uh, one of the best sources for bug bounty information is the HackerOne website. Just Google HackerOne and they have a complete list of bug bounty programs. And you don't have to apply for a job with a bug bounty program. Most of those are just open to the general public and you just have to abide by their guidelines. So if you're confident with doing stuff like that, that's an easy way in. And for application pen testers, they might want to see some bug bounty work on your resume before they consider hiring you. In episode seven, Tim Becker said that in order for him to get really good at bug bounties, he needed to specialize. Is specialization necessarily good for a pen tester? Because of the growth of the pen testing market, sometimes specialization can actually be quite useful. You might find as a software reverse engineer or as a bounty hunter that you are better at finding vulnerabilities in hardware drivers. Or you might find that you're better at looking in web applications, for instance. Maybe you come from a web development background. You should then focus on web vulnerabilities. And some bug bounty programs are for particular web applications and websites. It might be a bad idea to, to try to be a jack of all trades, because then you might be a master of none. Application pen testing is a really quickly growing field. Now that there are a lot more people in that job market, it might stand out if, if you can show that you're good at finding a particular kind of software vulnerability. And then the other thing that both Phil and I really strongly recommend are capture the flag competitions, CTFs for short. Capture the flags or CTFs are something else I've talked about on Hacker Mind. Basically, it is a series of computer challenges in topics like reverse engineering or cryptography, either in the Jeopardy style, where the topics get harder, or in attack and defend style, where you're solving challenges while attacking others and defending your own server. They're fun, and they're a great way to gain experience and learn InfoSec. Pretty much every major cybersecurity event has a CTF with it. Maybe not 100%, but the vast majority do. 
And the great thing about capture the flag competitions is I have never seen one that wasn't free to enter. So free of charge and free in the sense of anyone who wants to join may join. With bug bounty programs, you are looking for real, for bugs in real software. But with a capture of the flag, it's more of a fictionalized scenario. A virtualized network might be set up or a virtual machine of some sort. And it's a competition and usually a flag of some form is hidden somewhere in the application, in the virtualized network, in the virtual machine. And your job is to find it. It might be a line of code and a script. It might be a text file, but you have to hunt for it. And that's the kind of thinking that malicious cyber attackers have to engage in. And that's also a transferable skill to penetration testing because you're looking for ways to break into a system. If you find it really difficult to enter the field, sometimes pen testers have been hired after winning capture the flag competitions. It's something that frequently happens in our industry. If you don't win, definitely enter more competitions. Don't give up. Uh, remember what you learned from your experience in previous competitions and apply them to future competitions. And you can also put that on your resume. It's very common on a pen tester's resume to see a list of CTF competitions that they've been in, whether they've won or not. So it's all progress. Every CTF that you participate in is progress, whether you win or not. So maybe I've learned some skills. Maybe I've done some bug bounties. Maybe I've even done some CTFs and I'm now ranked on CTF time. Is that enough to get hired? Or is it through the networking process in these engagements where I've met enough people along the way for one of them to say, hey, I've got an opportunity. Would you like to come over and pen test? Is that how you get your foot in the door? Both. Like I and Phil Wiley, we both heard so many people say, I got the job from a CTF. And even if you, if you didn't win the competition, mm -hmm. very often, well, I mean, obviously these days at a CTF, we're all going to be doing it from home. But there's usually a chat application. There might be video meetings with the people in the competition. People are human. Humans are social creatures, right? Uh, people don't make hiring decisions necessarily based on rationality. They make they might make hiring decisions based on I like that guy. We're not having security events in person so much anymore, obviously because of the pandemic. But yeah, definitely hit as many online cybersecurity events as you can. Some of them are free. Some of them might charge a few hundred dollars to get in. The CTFs are always free, though. Given the economy, given everything that's going on, is this a good time to consider becoming a pen tester? Yeah, this is a really growing field. Um, I have spoken to pen testers who were doing penetration testing in the 90s. And back then it was the Wild West. There weren't much in the way of standards. Um, in the early 90s, there weren't specific network vulnerability scanning applications yet. 
as a pen tester, a lot of your job is abiding by policies and procedures. Most of those policies and procedures and guidelines and recommendations did not exist in the 90s. The vast majority of companies either didn't know what security testing was, or if they realized it would be a good idea, they invented everything on the spot. So these days, everything is a lot more formalized. We have, I think, the most useful organization in our particular segment of the industry is offensive security. And offensive security have been so incredibly useful. They've developed certifications like the OSCP and their more advanced certifications. They developed Cali, which started as Backtrack many years ago. They created a lot, a lot of the philosophy and the guidelines and the recommendations of the penetration testing field, they developed and they invented, and they filled they filled a need. They filled a they filled a void that existed in the '90s and in the early 2000s. A lot of what people learned in the '90s because they had a lot more leeway and a lot more freedom because it was all very new. That kind of thinking doesn't work these days. You have. To, there are policies, there are procedures, and you need to learn about what they are. And for people who have been pen testing since the 90s, there's a lot that they had to unlearn because they were, they were inventing everything and they were given a lot more leeway in the 90s. Now, if they try to in, in reinvent the wheel right now, they'll find that they run into a lot of like regulatory problems, for instance, or uh, violating the company's policies and procedures. So yeah, the world of offensive security is a lot more formal now than it used to be. We need a lot more younger people because then they don't have old habits that they kind of break out of. If you're still on the fence, but definitely interested, just unsure if pen testing is right for you, Kim has this advice. So I would recommend that if, you, if you're interested in pen testing in general, especially if you don't know where you're going to specialize yet, go to Offensive Security's website. Even if you can't afford to pay for a certification course right now, there's a lot of useful information there about recommendations and the philosophy of the penetration testing trade. And... Also, that's the source for Cali and Cali documentation. And if you didn't know it already, there's a lot of security folks like me on Twitter. You can follow us and you can find out what's happening in InfoSec. My friend Tanya Janka has a hashtag that she's popularized on Twitter, Mentoring Monday. Follow her account, she hacks purple. Uh, follow the Mentoring Monday hashtag. Follow the InfoSec hashtag. Another person in our industry who is really good at helping people with networking is Marcus Carey. Marcus Carey is a really selfless guy, and he spends a lot of his time trying to get people into our industry, not just penetration testers and other offensive security roles, but also on the defensive side, on the regulatory side, all areas of cybersecurity. So I would recommend following, follow Marcus Carey on, on Twitter, especially. We're a community, so get into it, you know.
I'd really like to thank Kim Crowley for taking the time to be on the show. If pen testing is something you've been curious about, check out The Pentester's Blueprint by Kim Crowley and Philip Wiley, available wherever you find books, both physical and digital. It's well worth a read as it's full of valuable and practical steps, as well as valuable insights from various pen testers on their particular InfoSec journeys, because learning InfoSec is a journey. Hey, before you go, remember to subscribe to The Hacker Mind and never miss another episode. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, so many different platforms. Check us out. This podcast is brought to you commercial-free by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mind, I remain your InfoSec journeyman, Robert Vermosing.